Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, US Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And John, the DraftKings Sports Betting National Championship returns to your neck of the woods this weekend. After a 34-month gap since the inaugural version of this event, they're trying it again with headquarters in Weehawken, New Jersey. Uh, Although gamblers can enter and play virtually from any of 11 states with online DraftKings Sportsbook access, including my home state of Pennsylvania. Spoiler I will not be ponying up the $10,000 to enter. Uh, In January 2019, when you had to be in New Jersey to play, they got 260 entries. They need 445 to avoid overlay this year. Be my line maker, John. How many entries do you think they're getting from 11 total states this weekend? You set the line, and I'll go over or under. All right, I'm going to make it easy, and I'm going to go with 445. So you decide if they come out ahead. You know, this really is up to DraftKings anyway. You know, the more of a marketing effort they have made to their key gamblers in each of these states, the more interest they'll get. So I think they have a much better idea now of how many contestants they can get. And if they thought it was, you know, a thousand, I think they would have approached this a bit differently. You know, DraftKings has learned a lot in almost those three years, as you mentioned, about the betting marketplace. So I would be surprised if they get uh, sort of uh, startled and and beaten again on that number. Yeah, that's a pretty good analysis. I, I, I mean, I think there's a, you know, a fairly wide potential for variation here. You know, on, on the one hand, $10,000 is a lot for most people and only the top 25 spots pay and, and drafting uh-huh. is taking a 5% fee, which is kind of high. So I think if you have the money, you might view it as fun and challenging, but I don't think anyone views it as a great pro- value proposition. Uh, but I'm also thinking about this. The World Series of Poker main event is starting right now. And a lot of the people who Hmm. might spend $10,000 on this entry are currently spending $10,000 on a different entry. Um, If this was New Jersey only, I would definitely predict it does lower numbers than 2019. But, you know, that easy access, that ability to enter from all these different states and and do it from home. I, I think you set a good line, but I'm going to go over. I, um, I, I really doubt there will be any overlay. Um, I don't think they're going to crush the guarantee, but, you know, maybe five to 600 entries would be my guess. So, so I'll go over. And, and for what it's worth, I would love it if DraftKings did a mini version of this, you know, uh, same rules, but, you know, $200 to enter and you start with a $100 bankroll. I might be into something like that uh, just for the competition. Uh, you know, $10,000 a little rich for my blood, however. Yeah, looking at your story and, and uh, Rufus Peabody's uh, experience in the previous one, yeah. um, I think the fact that they are like cutting off uh, adjustments at like a Sunday, one o'clock football, no late football games right. and, and limiting the amount of sports. I think that's actually good for the less incredibly sharp people like Rufus where, I mean, they're going to, if they could, they could, they can instantly make, you know, our, our former guest Jeopardy James would be, you know, spectacular at all that uh, adjustments on the fly. And I, so I think it, it levels the playing field a little bit um, to where not that an amateur is going to win, but somebody who's like in the, 
you know, AAA level, maybe can get over the top because they don't get quite outmaneuvered by the very, very, you know, narrowest of the 1% that, that are just going to win all these things, the more complicated you make it. Yeah. Um, well, when, when I talked to Rufus for that article, um, I, you know, I referred to that new 1 p.m. Sunday betting cutoff as the Rufus rule. And, and he, he loved that. He said he hopes that name sticks. He would be honored to have it known as the Rufus rule. Um, and um, should I repeat my, my story from the group Slack channel about Rufus? Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you saw this because I know you were out of pocket okay. uh, at times yeah. this week, so you might have missed it. But a uh, short okay. version, I was in the car with my son and my phone was hooked up to the Apple CarPlay thing on the screen in my car. And I got a text from Rufus while we were trying to arrange a time to chat. And so the little pop-up comes up on the screen, new message from Rufus Peabody. And my son lost it. Could not believe that I know somebody whose real name is Rufus Peabody. So if you're listening, Rufus, uh, there you go. Your name is providing entertainment for a 12-year-old boy for what that's worth. Oh, that's a fantastic name. It really is. I, I, I hope he's as proud of it as we are. It's, it's just great. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I wish Jeopardy James had a cooler last name because he deserves it too. <laughs> that's true. All right. All right. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 167 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 166 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. Please subscribe, rate, and review. You can do that from any state or country, regardless of whether it has legal DraftKings Sportsbook access. And coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by Sharp Alpha Advisors Managing Partner Lloyd Danzig, whose company recently closed a $10 million venture capital fund that is investing in sports betting startups. We're going to ask Lloyd about the most interesting innovations he's seeing, as well as how he'll decide what to invest in. Plus, you know, something a little bit different than usual. Uh, Lloyd's going to host a quick game of Seinfeld trivia between contestants Raskin and Brennan. But first has been, yes, yet again, another busy week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. There's no question what our top story is this week, as we have a new answer to the question of what is the largest state by population with legal mobile sports betting, and that state launched without warning before it was expected to on Monday. I am talking, of course, about Florida, where the Seminole tribe has a monopoly on mobile betting for the moment and launched its Hard Rock branded app out of the blue without even making a formal announcement five days before a scheduled hearing in federal court seeking an injunction to prevent their launch. There has been much debate in the legal community over whether the Seminoles can take bets that aren't made directly on Seminole property. But for now, the app works statewide. There are assorted lawsuits at assorted stages. Uh, so John, now that the toothpaste is out of the tube, is there any chance the Seminoles will be required to put it back in? Uh, do you expect the monopoly to last? And, and, and how good or bad is this for Florida betters having a single Hard Rock Sportsbook as an option for now? Yeah, I, I wish I was a lawyer sometimes, and this is one of them. You know, I can say this. I can't tell you how many beatdowns I've seen judges give over the years uh, for what they see as impudent plaintiffs or defendants in the first chance they get in court. But maybe there's a reason the Seminoles get to do this, um, you know, in spite of the expected November 15th possible launch, depending on the result of this hearing. Of course, recognized tribes really are sovereign nations and people don't really understand what that is. So maybe that makes all the difference and they can kind of do what they want. I'm not sure. So we haven't seen 
yet a large state with a monopoly and with a state like New Hampshire and DraftKings. I mean, how many miles can you drive in that state without getting near a border, right? right. Uh, as opposed to Florida. Although Vermont does not yet appear to even be aware of this betting option. I <laughs> think they rank 48th to Utah and Hawaii on the next likely state to legalize so far. Um, now, if Hard Rock, though, offers truly lousy lines and has a monopoly in Florida, you know, that could backfire, not only with sports bettors, but also casino gamblers who once have a reputation of looking to stick it to a gambler any chance they get. So uh, overall, though, this is currently my favorite state for sports betting melodrama. And uh, I love it when, you know, as usual, I get paid the same no matter what happens. I just sit in the, in the front row of the stands and watch. But although as the temperatures start cooling in the Northeast, I'm starting to think I need a sight visit soon to Seminole casinos. That sound good, Eric? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? The, this time of year, Florida, definitely, definitely nicer than New Jersey or Pennsylvania. Um, so I, I wonder how much of this was very deliberately launched at this time with the idea that let's launch now. It makes it harder for a judge to shut the app down once it's launched. Um, you know, the, the app is running. People have started betting. Yay, they have futures bets out there. We can't just refund everything. So, you know, if you're the Seminoles, you're thinking, you know, maybe the courts want a rule that we won't ultimately have a monopoly, but they at least let us keep taking bets in the meantime. I think that's part of the strategy behind this. Um, sports law professor Bob Jarvis told Jill Dorson at Sports Handle, that the optics of suing the Seminole tribe now to stop this, those are not good optics. Um, so I'll, I'll go along with that. You know, like you, I lack the legal expertise to know much uh, myself about this. I'm just reading what others are saying, but uh, I'll, I'll guess that the app keeps running, but that other mobile sports books will eventually enter the state, uh, I guess, by that ballot measure. You know, DraftKings and FanDuel have put a lot of money into that and, and will continue to. So I don't think they're going to beat the Seminoles, but if you can't beat them, join them. They do still want to join them. Um, and, and for Florida betters, it would work out in the sense that they have an app they can use right now. And then presumably they'll have some options for price shopping and promo shopping down the road eventually. Yeah, and we're going to see, again, forcing a judge's hand or seeming to try to force a judge's hand is almost always a suicide mission. But like I said, you know, tribes really are sovereign nations. They are a unique category, not like any other plaintiff or defendant in any other case. So maybe they get away with this and they avoid the beatdown. But I can't wait to see what happens up front. I, I guess the judge in, in this case is kind of like the umpire when it's a, a three, two pitch and the, the batter takes a close pitch and just immediately oh. starts walking to first. And now the judge has to decide, <laughs> is he walking to first because he's that uh, confident it was, it was a ball or is he or do i ring him up because he's being a jerk uh, assuming what the call is going to be i guess that's sort of the spot the judge is in here i think so and yeah umpires don't like that too much either i don't think i guess not okay we'll see what happens um our next story takes us to what will soon become the second biggest state with legal mobile wagering new york our colleague Matt Rybaltowski did some excellent reporting on Tuesday, got some strong scoops, and the word is that the New York Gaming Commission is close to awarding betting licenses to two super bids that are made up of a combined nine potential operators. One group, led by Camby, includes Rush Street Interactive, PointsBet, Caesars, Win, and Resorts World parent Genting. The other group includes FanDuel, DraftKings, BetMGM, and BallyBet. 
If there are ultimately nine operators, that should mean, according to the tax matrix that we discussed last week, a 51% tax rate, which is exactly what DraftKings is taxed at currently in New Hampshire. Uh, but it's possible there will be more operators. We're waiting to hear whether the Fanatics slash Penn Interactive bid will be approved, which could bring the tax rate down a whopping one percentage point to 50%. Uh, John, thoughts on the relatively open market developing in New York? And with an announcement from the New York Commission apparently coming soon ahead of schedule, does this change your expectation of the timing? In other words, are you now more bullish on the possibility of a launch in time for the Super Bowl? Yeah, I don't know who lit a fire under the State Gaming Commission that in the past I found to be rather well deliberate, deliberative, one of those things. Okay. Um, slow, <laughs> not fast moving, um, kind of uh, uh inertia like yeah but anyway <laughs> right. um so yeah i'm gonna move my mythical launch from like mid-april to possibly possibly the super bowl now if the bills are in it on the one hand it would seem as if new york would want the massive legal uh, handle from western new york it would be enormous but handles not revenue of course you know just ask new hampshire that we've mentioned uh they right. lost millions on the patriots last super bowl win <laughs> and there isn't a strong enough line to entice the buffalo region fan base to go against their team so if they cover they cover i remember back in 1987 the giants first ever super bowl you know the line which of course i was following for entertainment purposes only <laughs> uh, it moved with the local bookies by at least four or five points if i recall correctly to about 12 points or so for the giants um, Giants covered anyway. They trailed right. at the half 10 9, but covered on all the books with a 39 to 20 win. And I lost a couple of entertainment only bucks. <laughs> um, as far as the number of operators, I think it looks very good for gamblers at this point. Sure, the tax is high, but operators can make it up in volume, I think. Yep. Um, it's funny how this is playing out. You know, it looked when Cuomo first uh, pushed forward his version of what mobile sports betting should look like you know yeah. he wanted a monopoly or close to it like DraftKings in new hampshire but with super bids combined bids the distinction between operators and platform providers new yorkers are managing to get a lot of options you know not 20 or more like in new jersey but you don't need 20 somewhere between nine and a dozen that's plenty uh now if they get to 13 the tax rate comes down to 35 percent. that would be a, a huge difference for the operators so we'll see where it lands but i think it's increasingly clear that we're headed to a, a solid competitive situation for the betters who live in new york and if New York Mobile launches sometime early in 2022, whether it's by the Super Bowl or not, with 10 or so operators, and Florida still just has one operator, I could see New York shooting to number one in handle in its very first month and then staying there for a long time. Um, I don't know if you've thought about this, uh, John, but would you agree that whenever New York's first full month is, the state figures to, to leapfrog New Jersey immediately and become number one? Um, I'm not sure immediately, but certainly within a couple of months. And, you know, I'm just thinking about a couple of months ago, I uh, was speaking to an insider who had told me that kind of confirmed my suspicions that Cuomo doesn't really didn't really care about this stuff at all. And right. he just got somebody whisper in his ear, you should do this. And if you remember when he first announced it, it was sort of suggested that I think it was a bit of lottery or whatever. And then there was some kind of constitutional issue where they couldn't exactly do that. And then within 24 hours, he backed off of it. So basically I had a governor who got one person you know, into his ear to say, hey, let's do this. And he's like, yeah, whatever. He doesn't care about any of this stuff. And that was going to be somewhat of a disaster. And the new governor, uh, Kathy Hochul, doesn't care about this stuff either, I don't think. Um, but at least she's not 
getting a voice in the rear, apparently, to try and, you know, uh, rig this again. So I think it's going to work out fine. And I got to say, a few months ago, none of us expected that to work out. Of course, none of us expected uh, (laughs) Cuomo not to be governor anymore either. (laughs) Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, for our third story this week, uh, speaking uh, of, of governors and who is and still isn't, uh, let's look at some election results. Um, now, as we record this on Thursday morning, the governor's race in your state, John, uh, hasn't been officially called or conceded yet. Uh, we think we know who's probably winning, but who knows if there will be recounts or if this will drag out a bit. One election result that isn't dragging out is the New Jersey ballot question about allowing betting on in-state college teams and games, and it was rejected. 56% to 44%. Another rejection took place in Richmond, Virginia, although by a more narrow margin, it was 51-49 against the construction of a casino in Richmond, which would have been called One Casino. That's O-N-E, all capitals. Uh, the four other Virginia cities granted the right to a casino do not require a referendum like Richmond does. Uh, and in New Hampshire, voters in Nashua came down in favor of a retail DraftKings sportsbook in their town by a 54-46 margin. Uh, Voters in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, meanwhile, voted against allowing the Kino 603 electronic bingo game in restaurants. Uh, John, give me your thoughts on any or all of these. And particularly, do you have a main theory as to why the New Jersey question failed? Uh, The weirdest thing for me for New Jersey is that the college betting question failed in all 21 counties in spite of neither side basically spending a nickel on marketing, advertising, anything with about 51 to 61 percent of voters across the state, red and blue, urban, rural, you name it, 51 to 61 percent in every single county. I mean, there's some kind of big Facebook page I don't know about. I at least starting to wonder. <laughs> I don't know how that could possibly happen. You know, and uh, our former gamble on guest, Captain Jack Andrews, he sees this as a, as a rebuke of the inundation of ads for gambling that he and, and I, among others, are subjected to. And that's plausible. But as pure speculation, I'll do mine. I think a lot of voters are only vaguely aware that sports betting is even legal in New Jersey. Hmm. They're not gamblers. Uh, but three years later, maybe they're kind of aware of it. But now they're asked if it's OK to bet on amateur athletes, too. And I can see someone being suspicious, like, if this is OK, why wasn't it approved in 2018? And more importantly, I think some voters have no idea that 95 percent or more of college games already are bet on legally in New Jersey. Um, Now, in Virginia, I thought the ballot question would pass for Richmond. I'm not sure what happened there. Bingo is a split ticket. Meanwhile, expansion won in New Jersey. That was the only other ballot question. Two ballot questions in New Jersey. Both are kind of gambling related and one passes easily and the other one loses easily. I don't know. Uh, But uh, it just reminds me that we all have to accept the fact that, look, people are busy and they don't care much about a lot of these admittedly inconsequential ballot questions in terms of impact in their lives. Yeah. Gotta love democracy, I suppose. (laughs) Not not, not sure I'm ready to say gotta love it, but, uh, you know. Um, Yeah. So I kind of subscribe to both your theory and Captain Jack's theory playing a role here. I'm sure a lot of people voting on the New Jersey ballot question didn't have a clue what they were voting for. Um, Someone sent me a clip of the Brian Lehrer show from earlier this week. Um, It was on election morning they were recording and he and his co-host, I think, represented a lot of people when they were admitting they didn't quite know what this ballot question was all about. They were sort of trying to parse it on air. He didn't know what forms of college betting are and aren't legal in New Jersey. They took some calls from people 
who actually provided some clarity. But, you know, one of the callers insisted it's dangerous to allow people to bet on Rutgers College students as if people aren't already doing that. But at least that caller, she understood what the vote was for. I'm sure a lot of people didn't understand the question at all. And I think that's part of it. And I do also subscribe to the Captain Jack theory that a lot of people are, are sick of the sports book ads and are just ready to vote against anything having to do with sports betting. Um, the Richmond vote, I actually don't find it that surprising. I mean, a lot of people do not want a casino in their town. Like, yeah. I, I love having casinos nearby in Philadelphia or, or, or parks is about 20 minutes away from me. That's all good. But even I, as a person who works in the industry, I might not be in favor of a casino directly in the town where I live. So I get the instinct to vote against it. Um, but I also feel really bad for the people behind the casino. They put a lot of work and money into this, a million bucks into just trying to get people to vote for it. And I'm not sure where they go now. It, it was a long road to get here to have their proposal be the one that was accepted. And now, I don't know, does the state pick a different city for the fifth casino or, or is this it? Four casinos in, in, instead of five. I'm not sure where it all goes from here. Yeah, well, I mean, they have time to consider that. It's not too bad, but I must give props to Captain Jack, too, for noticing that a, uh, a publication that rhymes with Lou Lork Limes uh, <laughs> noted, uh, in their listing of the, the question uh, uh, in New Jersey, they thought this was going to be whether to end a ban on po- uh, postseason uh, a tournament uh, right. college games. And as he joked, that's the end of March Madness in New Jersey, apparently, <laughs> which, yeah, as I said, 65 out of 67 games were bet last year. And um, hopefully my Fairly Dickinson Knights will be back in this year and we'll only be able to bet on like 64 out of 67 <laughs> games. But, uh, yeah, it, it, the whole thing is crazy. But um, I will say that this re- referendum will be back in 2020. 23 and the marketing approach will be that in march of 2025 we will have uh, march madness in the prudential center in newark and you don't want to have you know thousands tens of thousands of visitors from four different schools around the country arriving in new jersey many of them at that point in states where you can bet legally and finding out that they've landed in new jersey they didn't think ahead to make a bet and now they can't make a bet on this game in new jersey because well, for whatever, because so I think I think it's going to win in 2023 for that reason. There was no real uh, you know, suggestion either way this year to do it or not do it. But I think that'll put it over the top, which just tells you again how kind of apathetic the, the voter base is. They, they got no information this year. And so they vote against it. And just one little marketing effort to say, hey, you know, in 2025, we got this thing and it's going to be good. We're going to make lots of tax revenue. So why don't you vote for it? They're going to say no. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm going to do that. So that's my prediction. Yeah. I, I think your, your instinct is right that they'll, they'll get it worked out before March madness potentially comes to New Jersey. And uh, wouldn't it be ironic uh, in uh, March madness, 2022, if Farley Dickinson makes it and you, <laughs> you, a New Jersey resident end up driving across the border into New York to place <laughs> your bets right. on your team. That would be yeah, the ultimate irony. Yeah, that, that's not too far. I can get there in under half an hour. So, yeah, there we go. I, I, I would actually do it just for that of it. Plus that's for a, good, that's a story good right there. That's an yeah, article. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By then, we'll be doing video of it, too. Yeah. Right. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview.
In the interview segment this week, we make it back-to-back guests whose companies have been in the news lately. Last week, it was Keith White of the NCPG, which had made news by partnering with the NFL. And this week, we welcome back for his third appearance, Lloyd Danzig, managing partner of Sharp Alpha Advisors, which made headlines recently for closing a $10 million venture capital fund that is investing in sports betting startups. Lloyd, Congratulations on reaching a number with seven zeros at the end, and welcome back to Gamble On. Thank you very much, guys. It's great to be here. I don't think I'm quite at Sarah Slane or Adam Small levels of frequency on the platform, but but I'm getting up there on the leaderboard, so I appreciate you guys having me back. That's right. It's still a fairly elite group that's in the three-timers club, and uh, Fair enough. you have to get to the three-timers club before you can hit the five-timers club, obviously. So um, so before we start asking you questions, I will note for the listeners that at the end of the interview, you're going to be asking us some questions. Um, I'm a big Seinfeld fan. John is a big Seinfeld fan. And Lloyd is a big Seinfeld fan, and he has agreed to host a quick Seinfeld trivia quiz, pitting me against John. So that's coming Uh at the end of the interview. Uh, But for now, Lloyd, let me ask you about that $10 million fund you've put together. Why this amount? Why now? And what is the goal here for Sharp Alpha Advisors? Absolutely. I'll answer that slightly out of order. I'll answer why now, and then the goal, and then the amount. Why now? I think part of the story is something everyone is familiar with, in part thanks to what you guys cover here, which is just how big the sports betting industry is getting. Gross gaming revenue continues to eclipse even the most bullish of estimates. Sports betting operators are expanding into all sorts of other industries with large revenue opportunities. DraftKings has an NFT marketplace, Barstool's delivering frozen pizzas, Fanatics wants a single wallet for all of a sports fan's digital needs. But that could be the thesis behind investing at any part of the capital structure at any stage in the industry. Why startups and why early stage companies, I think, is slightly more nuanced. But what it comes down to ultimately is the fact that On the one hand, there's a massive amount of innovation that is needed in this industry as it grows from virtually non-existent a few years ago to tens of billions of dollars in revenue every year. Innovation on the front end, innovation on the back end. And that is the very innovation that a lot of, in fact, almost all of the market leaders need the most but are ill-equipped to provide on their own. And what it ends up being, if you were to maybe structure some sort of formula. It's something like the pace of market development plus the cost of customer acquisition plus the regulatory burden results in this opportunity for early stage companies because the DraftKings and FanDuel's of the world are really buying or licensing technology rather than building it at almost every turn. So that is why now, why early stage startups. The goal of the fund is to fund incredible entrepreneurs, building amazing products and companies that will make up the next generation of infrastructure for this space and hopefully help them along that path. And in doing so, deliver incredible returns and world-class service to to our investors. Uh, Which brings me to the, the final part of your question, why 10 million, not nine or 11 or any other number? For this first fund, 10 million is the size we identified that would best allow us to execute on our investment strategy and produce the best returns. Given the publicity we've had and and how hot the space is, we've had to turn away 
quite a bit of money, which is never easy to do, but that is something we'll be harvesting in a couple of other funding vehicles that'll launch next year that have slightly different investment objectives and portfolio construction. So 10 million was the optimal size for the current strategy to return capital to investors based on the current thesis. Uh, so I, I was going to ask whether 10 million turned out to be easier or harder to get to than you might have expected. It sounds like it was easier if you were turning uh, people away. Well, ironically and almost frustratingly, uh, the moment I started turning people away is when 10 times as many people wanted to come in. So I wish they had wanted to come in when I was going through all the hard work of raising, but I, I think that's how it is. So hopefully fund two will be quite a bit easier. Gotcha. All right, you know, uh, Lloyd, full disclosure, it's only recently that I found out that if somebody sidles up to me at one of those gaming conferences we go to and says, do I have a personal hotspot, that that might not, that might actually be a tech question and not uh, a flirtation. So uh, with that disclaimer in hand, um, I'm curious about what the kind of the main areas of that technical innovation you mentioned that, you know, are, are kind of a, attracting uh you know, all this venture capital investment and, and also in sports betting and in online casino gaming. And is that really the same tech? I mean, are they so close that, uh, you know, if you solve one problem, you solve the other, or is there, or is there more technical reasons that uh, you need different innovations for each sector? Yeah, sometimes yes, sometimes no, a little bit of all of that. The way that I organize all of these deals, hundreds or thousands of companies that I see coming through the space, uh, is in terms of what types of products and solutions they're building. And I tend to categorize the companies that I look at into one of the following six categories. And they're not ultra technologically oriented. I think anyone with experience in sports and sports betting should understand at least some of it. Uh, and it's not a perfectly mutually exhaustive list, but it turns out almost any company you see will fit nicely into one of these six buckets, some of which I have clever names for and others not so much. Uh, just to start and in no particular order, uh, betting intelligence is the term I use for all the tools and products that help people decide what they want to bet on. That's anything ranging from influencers making picks to very robust analytical platforms and everything in between. And these are very important because even as an entertainment product, placing a sports bet can be very anxiety provoking and come with a lot of decision fatigue, even if not a lot of money's on the line, often you have some pride on the line or something like that. Uh, and so reducing these frictions by way of what I call betting intelligence products and solutions is very important for the ecosystem. Another category is what I call financial productization, which is the importing of technology and tools and processes from the fintech and Wall Street world to the world of sports betting. So on the front end, that's going to be all of your stock market for sports betting products. And on the back end, payment processing, KYC, AML, geolocation. There's an Acorns for sports betting, a Plaid for sports betting. Acorns and Plaid are both very successful multi-billion dollar fintech startups. Third or another category, it's especially popular these days, is social betting and gamification. There's standalone B2C companies, there's B2B white label companies, but all of them are building products and solutions that more closely map onto consumer preferences in the US where people are primarily social and entertainment driven bettors. Not as much placing a bet to maximize their risk adjusted return, but because it's more fun to say, I told you so when you have $5 on the line. Another category I've named three so far, fourth would be data, odds, and related infrastructure. Like I said, they don't all have uh, clever names. Data, odds, and related infrastructure is kind of a catch-all for the technology that 
first collects data, the raw data from a basketball game or a Formula One race. It also uh, includes the parts of the tech stack that take that data and move it through some sort of predictive engine to help set the odds in-game, pre-match, micro bets, and then all of your risk management and trading tools. Those are the technological tools that help you change the odds as the bets come in. Another category is especially prevalent in the US where media and betting is, is heavily integrated is all of the content and engagement tools. That's media content, uh, which is what you guys do. There's the gaming content, actual games themselves, all the tools that sports teams and broadcasters use to, to monetize this growth. And then finally uh, is sustainable gaming. It's a term I prefer to responsible gaming, but whichever term you like in that category, you have integrity monitoring services that help use algorithms to detect signs of match fixing. You have self-limiting and self-exclusion tools that help people self-impose restrictions. You have something that's very popular in the UK and Europe, but not yet here, which is this notion of affordability checks, where once you reach a certain threshold of losses, you are required to show documentation of your net worth or your bank account balance in order to continue wagering and other things of that nature. So those are the six categories that pretty much any deal you find will fit into. And that's how I like to organize all of these companies in my mental model of the space. Yeah, and Lloyd, now, uh, is there any one of those six buckets you talk about that there's an op opportunity there for uh, somebody to solve a challenge that nobody solved yet? And if, and if you're the person that solves that, you know, you're going you're gonna to go to the moon. Or are they all kind of similar times of the, terms of potential, that sort of thing? I, I, the one that comes to mind, there, there are probably a few. Uh, payment processing is still a point of major friction that could be reduced. There's several. I think the biggest the way you described it, that some the challenge that no one has solved yet, that if a company could solve, would be straight to the moon. I feel like the answer to that question has to be peer-to-peer -peer betting. Betfair has done this in the UK. They operate a betting exchange. There are several startups, both in and outside of the crypto space, that are going both the licensed and unlicensed routes in the US. There are a lot of challenges in creating a peer-to-peer -peer betting exchange, in particular, the Wire Act restricts you to only source bets from within one state at a time. And that means that you have to have enough people on the platform making a large enough variety of bets at all different stakes and all different odds that if one of you guys go on to put some ridiculous parlay in or some exotic future or teaser bet, there needs to be someone taking the other side of that. Otherwise, you won't get your bet filled. You won't get your order filled. You won't have a good experience. So if someone can solve for the regulatory and the liquidity and user experience issues and implement, especially on a national scale, a peer-to-peer -peer betting exchange, which is really just a technological version of what most people have been doing who have been betting on sports for their whole lives anyway, I, I think that is a major area that's attracting a lot of interest from even some of the biggest VC firms in the world that have the highest thresholds for how big the opportunity needs to be for them to invest. Yeah, I, I saw this happen in New Jersey a couple of years ago. Uh, uh, so it's kind of a syndicate that they always used to come to the Meadowlands racetrack and uh, they'd kind of pool their brains together in like a Ocean's Eleven kind of thing and bet on horse races. And um, they were pretty successful for a while and then not so much. And uh, you're right about the issues of getting you know, beyond state lines and all that kind of stuff. It, it didn't really take off and it's on the back burner. But, you know, if it's going to uh, explode once again, it's probably going to be New Jersey, I think. Yeah, the, uh, there, there really are two primary venture-backed 
startups that have licenses uh, to operate and are in kind of the final stages with the DGE. Profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, which did a market access deal with Caesars to operate in New Jersey, and then Sport Trade also going live in New Jersey. Those two are kind of jockeying to see who will be the first to actually process a peer-to-peer wager. New Jersey will be home to them. It has the most educated sports betting population. It has the population where sports betting composes the highest percentage of personal consumption expenditures, it has a favorable tax rate, and it has a regulator that has a reputation for being open to innovation and new ideas. So New Jersey is definitely the place for it. So uh, so you ha- have the money. Um, how does your fund find startups to invest in and decide which ones receive a check? Um, and, and, you know, investments aside, w- what are some of the coolest companies you've talked to in terms of products that lifelong sports bettors will be excited to see in the market? Yeah, so sourcing deals, creating a proprietary deal pipeline, which is the industry buzzword that you use uh, when you have a lot of startups that you're looking at that no one else is, is a really important part uh, to being a successful VC fund. The way you give good returns to your investors is by finding the best entrepreneurs who lead the best companies who will produce the best results. And so for us, that you and as with many VC firms entails putting together a lot of different networks and sources and pathways. So I personally am a mentor for Techstars, for the Lead Sports Accelerator, which is the uh, Adidas family fortune kind of crafted into a sports tech accelerator. I am the gaming industry sector specialist for Drive by DraftKings. I have a lot of colleagues and friends who work at the other VC funds that invest in sports tech and all that. And so we are always sharing deals. And then I have a very extensive network of investors. Investors in a fund are known as LPs, which stands for limited partners. The limited partners in my fund are Silicon Valley-based angel investors, executives from some of the top sports betting and online casino operators, VC funds from elsewhere in the world. And so you add all of those things up and you get a nice pipeline of incoming interest and pitch decks and entrepreneurs to talk to. But then it gets to the hard part, which you refer to, which is kind of how you select the startups. Uh, We'll look at a thousand companies and invest in 10. Uh, And the way that takes place is, first of all, they have to really fit into our macro view of the industry, that sports betting is expanding, not just on a revenue basis, but into these other verticals, NFTs and digital collectibles and esports and all of that. And then we ask ourselves, I think, probably similar questions to what other VCs ask, which starts with something like, does this company identify an important problem? Do they have a compelling solution to that problem? Is that solution monetizable at scale? And do they have the right team to monetize that solution at scale? And if all that checks out, usually what we then, the final boxes to check are, is this the best possible time to invest in this company? We like to get in right before the valuation doubles for the first time and get out right after it doubles for the last time. Uh, And then finally, can we add a ton of value uh, here and sort of be manifestors of our own destiny? And so if all of those stars align, there's then, you know, a legal diligence process, uh, background checks and all of that. uh, And that's kind of how the investments get made. One of the hardest things I do, which is funny how you asked the question, one of the hardest things I do, although it's a problem I'm happy to have, is separate what is cool from what is investable. 
basically 100% of the stuff that I see is cool. I love sports betting and all this, which is why I'm in this position in the first place. So it's very rare. I don't see something where I say, wow, that is really cool. And I would even be a user of the product, but that doesn't mean it's investable. Moving the investment aside, some of the cool stuff that I'm excited, I think, to use, uh, not only peer-to-peer video game wagering, which is me playing you in Madden or FIFA or Call of Duty for money, but me being able to bet against the house on my own performance in video games. That's something that's fun and right around the corner. Uh, I just was testing out a mobile app for Super Bowl box pools, takes the whole experience, puts it on the mobile phone, and lets you buy, sell, and trade squares with other people in the pool while the game is going on. There are also all sorts of other decentralized crypto-based exchanges and platforms I'm looking at where, for example, you could do the same thing with your March Madness bracket, sell it on a secondary market and stuff like that. And then, and especially in the context of Mark Zuckerberg's uh, metaverse announcement, there really are a lot of cool virtual reality metaverse type experiences, whether that's playing in a totally virtual casino, putting on a headset and thinking you're in a luxury box alongside your other friends who also have headsets on their respective couches and kind of getting that in-stadium experience and pairing that with sports betting. Uh, All stuff that's uh, right around the corner and on the horizon. Well, you, you had me with all of that until the the metaverse and the VR and all that. That's that's not quite up my alley, but uh, I suppose you know there's there's a different different audience for everything, and uh, there are some people who are very interested in that. Definitely, I could hear John making the same noises as me. The box pool, tra- trading and selling squares in oh, the middle yeah. of the game. Yeah. I, I'm I'm in for that definitely. Yeah, I, I knew a guy back in the probably back in the 80s or 90s who was on Wall Street, and of course, just the way they their their DNA is, they would do a pool where you pick the team out of a hat, and there's 64 participants, right? And instead of just saying like, "Wow, I got you know Duke, I got a shot," or "Oh my God, you know Fairleigh Dickinson, that's not going to happen. That's my <laughs> alma mater." Um, they're going to win. They immediately start trading them. So if you hate Duke and you have them, and you put in, they put in maybe five thousand bucks a piece, some crazy number, and they can sell it immediately for you know twelve or whatever or 15 and that's what they do and they do it throughout the tournament they can't resist so uh, that was lower tech then but uh, definitely intrigued by those two but you know Lloyd you're, you're on such a day-to-day basis you're seeing new things every day you're trying to figure out what to do I mean I don't know if you ever step back and think you know what's the sports betting industry going to look like five or ten years from now and are there any players that haven't arrived yet that will and and that sort of thing do you, do you think about that much? Yeah, I, I do a lot because venture capital investments have a five, 10, sometimes longer year horizon. And so uh, you better hope that you're investing in a product or at least a team that can adapt to what your vision of the future of the market is. Uh, I think that five to 10 years from now, the sports betting market will look anywhere between moderately to radically different uh, than it is today. It will be much larger on a revenue basis, much more consolidated with probably fewer marquee B2C brands. I think it will be a lot more social. Uh, DraftKings, by the way, is a company that loves to unceremoniously debut new products in their app without totally announcing it so they could test them in a live environment. And especially if you're in New Jersey right now, and I think Pennsylvania too, you can log on to DraftKings and navigate over to the social tab on the app, which is something they referenced in a previous earnings call, but haven't announced. And you'll see all this new functionality. It looks like a combination between a Twitter and a TikTok feed almost right inside your DraftKings app. And they are trying to move toward an environment where I am encouraged to bet on one platform because all my friends are also betting on that platform and we can track our performance and our PNL and our bankroll management against each other and things of that nature. 
I think the future of the industry will be a lot more integrated with adjacent industries. So whether it's Fanatics or DraftKings, one wallet where you can bet on sports, buy tickets, buy merchandise, buy collectibles, whether the traditional type or digital, and all of that be interoperable within the ecosystem. I think that's a a place where it's going. I do think uh, there's some degree of of taking place in digital virtual worlds where watching sports or betting on sports will, will happen. And I think that what comes to mind when I think about who is not a major player in the space that will be, uh, I don't think it's novel to say fanatics anymore, but they are technically not yet here and they certainly will be. And then the other, just as a group, uh, I think uh, some of the crypto exchanges FTX, they now sponsor every Major League Baseball umpire jersey and are, uh, you know, the arena in Miami. And uh, especially as people are interested in decentralized sports betting exchanges, I think you'll see uh, some of those crypto guys come in as well. Uh, And like I said, Fanatics uh, will be a big player for sure. Yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, try and see if you've, you've gotten anywhere. Last week at the East Coast Gaming Congress in Atlantic City, um, there was mention of the the, the just collapsed DraftKings and Tain deal. And uh, when you were asked about it, I thought, all right, here's my chance because I have no idea what the hell this is. And then you said, yeah, at that point, it was so sudden that uh, you had more questions than answers. I'm wondering, uh, what's the ratio of questions answers now? Or is it still, even if it's a mystery to you, there's no hope for the rest of us. <laughs> First of all, I think that ratio might have been born from the large volume of questions that I have rather than there being a large number of answers or anything like that. It's a small denominator issue here. Uh, let me give you a couple thoughts on this. Uh, one thing that I heard, I think you guys actually mentioned even on the last episode, and I've heard a number of people talk about but not be exactly sure about, some have been making this comment that it seems the market was happy that the deal did not go through because DraftKings stock increased and therefore DraftKings shareholders for one reason or another must have been happy that this business combination was not taking place. I, although you can never be 100% sure how the market's working, I'm 99% sure that that's not exactly what happened here. The movement in DraftKings stock price was not about people saying this is a good deal or a bad deal or, oh, I can't believe it fell apart or, oh my God, deals of this size might be too difficult. Really what happened was DraftKings was going to acquire Intain for $22 billion. DraftKings has $3 billion in cash on their balance sheet. So where's the rest of that going to come from? They were going to give every Entain shareholder some DraftKings shares. But a lot of those shares were going to have to be created, newly issued by the company. So if previously you had 100 shares of DraftKings and that represented 1% ownership in the company, and then they went out and said, we need to create a whole bunch of new shares so that we can give them to the Entain guys, your same 100 shares would be representing a smaller ownership in the company, which as long as the company has not changed in value, should cause your shares to decrease. So when the news came out, the stock went down when first it was announced that DraftKings was going to acquire Intain because people said, aha, they are going to have to issue a lot of new shares to make this deal happen. And so everyone who currently owns shares will own a smaller percentage of the company. And the stock price had to adjust to, to, to reflect that. Once the deal fell apart, that sort of was reversed. So not necessarily positive or negative commentary on the deal itself. The deal from the beginning was very interesting in nature because it was very well known that first of all, MGM retained a veto power over any deal that would have this technology fall into the hands of a US competitor. And two, that DraftKings, I mean, I'm sorry, the BetMGM or MGM has been absolutely insistent on owning 100% of that JV, not giving up their 50% to their closest competitor. 
So that gave rise to kind of three different theories as to why DraftKings made this bid in the first place. Some people thought it was the straight down the fairway reason of, oh, they want to purchase an internationally diversified set of profitable assets. Right now, DraftKings is not profit or EBITDA producing, but most of the Entain assets are. Others said, actually, this is more of a defensive uh, tactic. DraftKings wants to deprive what they see as their most formidable competitor, other than FanDuel, of a key piece of technology that that competitor would need to be competitive. And others said, this is actually all just a ruse to force MGM to have to pay way more than they wanted to for Entain since their $11 billion offer earlier in the year did not go through. And so it's not exactly clear what happened that day. It was funny. We were, I was sitting with all the analysts uh, at that East Coast Gaming Congress who cover the DraftKings name when the news came out. Perhaps it's the case that Entain shareholders said, we don't assign the same growth multiple to DraftKings stock and we don't want to receive so much stock. Perhaps the DraftKings guy said, okay, this is as far as we could take this ruse. We've been intending on just forcing MGM to submit a higher bid the whole time, and we kind of have to make a final decision here. So I think my comment about having more questions than answers at the time was really based around, okay, now I really want to know what was DraftKings initial motivations, because I don't think any new information had come out or come to light for them. They must have had a pretty good sense of how this thing would play out. Or was there something that got thrown in? Did the Entain shareholders say, we don't want stock like this or something like that? So uh, hopefully that, again, does, doesn't give more answers, but at least clarifies where some of my position and in insight is. That does help. All right. Well, th this has been uh, fascinating, uh, as it always is when you're on, Lloyd. Uh, but uh, before we let you go, uh, let's uh, shake it up for a few minutes. Let's have some fun. And instead of us hosting, let's make you the host of a quick Seinfeld trivia game. Time to find out whether John or I is master of this domain. Uh, so uh, take it away, Lloyd. All right. So I, I believe the way we'll do this, I'll, I'll go back and forth a uh, question for each. Uh, you get a point if you get it right. The other one can uh, take steal the answer and get a point if you don't. Uh, and what I did here, I realized I watched so much Seinfeld that I've lost a bearing on what an easy, medium or hard question would be for any ordinary fan. So I hope I calibrated correctly, but let me get started. I guess Eric will start out with a nice, easy one, a softball, hopefully, for both of you guys. I hope uh, for Eric, <laughs> we'll start off with, what is the name of the holiday that George's father invents? Uh, that would be Festivus. There we go. Festivus for the rest of us. Uh, uh, celebrated on December 23rd. I got a with you, Danzig. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> right. All right, so this is good. I might have to step up the difficulty a little here, but I, I guess we'll go to John first with another another. A relative softball. John, what is the name of the woman that George dates who works at NBC? Um, not uh, was Susan at NBC? No. There you go. So there we go. Uh, okay. So it was stuck somewhere. I her, but I wasn't sure where she worked. Yeah. You, you were I questioning yourself. Yeah. I wasn't going to require the last name. Susan Davis is the full name if, if it's needed. <laughs> so we'll, we'll move up to the medium difficulty here. For, we'll start with Eric. Okay. Eric, when George is dating a girl who says that she'll only date someone who is the same religion as her because of a, a ruling from her parents and George decides to convert to that religion, what is that religion? I haven't seen this one in a while, but I do, I do remember it. It is uh, Latvian Orthodox. 
That is exactly right. It's Latvian Orthodox. Uh, George says, ultimately, he likes the religion because of the hats uh, is, is the reason that he gives. Um, I'll, go, I'll go back to you here, John. John, if you remember, there's an episode where Kramer makes a statue of Jerry doing stand-up out of Fusilli pasta. I actually have, I keep on my desk, a Fusilli Jerry right here, a replica from the show. Uh, after Kramer builds the Fusilli Jerry, he turns to George and says he's going to make a similar statue of George, but using a different type of pasta. What type of pasta would the statue of George be made out of? I'm going to say linguine. Ah, you, you almost went the opposite direction. George is a, George is a short, stocky man, so Kramer was going to make his statue out of ravioli. Oh, uh, well, I, didn't get my, I didn't get my opportunity to steal. Oh, my God, you're right. I messed up the game. but I was going to guess wrong and say macaroni, so it's good. We're okay. All right. We'll get a touch more difficult here, Eric. So George lies to Susan's parents about having a house in the Hamptons. And they end up making him drive all the way out to this fictional house. And as he's describing it, he tells Susan's parents he has two horses. They ask him, what are the names of your horses? And he says, what names does he give of these horses? Wow, this is obscure. I can I can identify the timeline. This has got to be like early season eight, right? I think after Susan uh, has, has moved on to the next life. Um, Correct. The names of the horses uh yeah i and i'm not i'm even blanking on the name of kramer's horse that takes them for the for the the carriage ride the I can't carriage even, ride i can't even think of the name of that horse so i'm definitely not going to come up with these two so uh, uh opportunity john, for john john, to opportunity to steal <laughs> uh yeah the horses are named jerry and elaine <laughs> the horses are named snoopy and prickly pete uh, uh, are, are the names of the horses uh, so I suppose it's two to one, Eric. And if John can get this last question, we go to a tiebreaker. Otherwise, it's all Eric's. Uh, John, George's ATM code, we all know, is Bosco, named after his favorite chocolate syrup. <laughs> what is Jerry's ATM code? Wow. Uh, won't even make a inaccurate <laughs> bluff this time. I'll just stand down and and uh, take my loss. Concede. All right. So I guess Eric's going to win it two to one. The answer, Jerry's uh, ATM code is Jor-El, Superman's father's uh, name, okay. uh, which is what his ATM code is. But that was a ton of fun. Eric, I guess you won two to one. And, and uh, I'll recalibrate the difficulty, maybe make John's questions a little easier next time. <laughs> I, th I, I do think I think you had, uh, you know, relatively easy, medium and hard. You had them in the right order, at least, whether, <laughs> you know, whether all the questions were exactly equal, I guess uh, some could debate. But I, 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 I'm going to challenge one thing is uh, you said Susan Davis, wasn't it Susan Ross or was Davis like... Uh, uh, am I mix? Am I mixing something up? You are absolutely right. They are the Rosses. Although there's also an uh, there's also an episode where George says, "You mean you want to go out with Susan Davis?" And that is making me realize I should dig into so maybe Davis changed, must. Maybe well, obviously it's not midstream at some point in the show. Yeah, there are a bunch of those. Uh, there are things that got changed. Obviously, right. Costanza would be the new name had they gotten married. So it's not like. Ross or Davis would be a maiden name. Uh, this is giving me a lot of things to think about. I'm going to have to do some Googling uh, as right, soon as we get off here. If, if in fact, the Davis thing, if you're way off with that, then I am going to declare myself the winner, John second place, and you third, Lloyd, for screwing that up. But I, I would there, agree with that, honestly. <laughs> I will make myself the loser in this case if that ends up being the situation. 
That's well, good. That, that, that was fun, though. Those were good questions. We appreciate uh, you uh, taking a little time to do that. And of course, uh, talking all about the uh, the uh, the industry here with us uh, for, for a while again today. Appearance three down, uh, appearance four to come soon, I'm sure. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, Lloyd. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. We'll get to the Fast Five shortly, but first, let's update our betting bankroll. And this is one domain we are not masters of at the moment. Uh, another bad week, and this one was on me. Uh, John split his bets. He lost $110 on Cincinnati, not quite covering against Tulane, but he won $100 on Seamus Power, finishing in the top 20. So that's almost even, Stephen. Uh, but I went 0 for 2. One big one, one little one. The teaser god struck me down on that Jets comeback as the Bengals failed to cover the adjusted minus 2.5 spread. And And that was a big investment gone wrong, $169, unfortunately. The other loss was minor. The James Butayev boxing match was not a draw. We lost $10 as I keep chasing that elusive result. So we lost $189 for the week, putting us at minus $1,806 overall. We also have $1,310 on hold in futures bets. And I figure next week, uh, it's the midway point of the NFL season. Nine out of 18 weeks will be in the books. So we'll check in on our NFL futures then. But for now, we have a relatively paltry $6,884 available to bet with. And I'm up first this week. And we have a major boxing match this weekend. One of the biggest global stars in all of sports, Canelo Alvarez, takes on Caleb Plant in Las Vegas. And Canelo is a prohibitive favorite. The best price I'm seeing on him is minus 900. That's just not worth it. The bet I like is for Canelo to win specifically by decision. I actually think it's more likely than a knockout. Plant is a skilled boxer who I think can frustrate Canelo a little and and keep him at bay and won't wilt easily. Of course, one body shot can change everything in boxing and Canelo is a good body puncher, but I think it's slightly more likely Canelo wins over the distance than by KO, but the sports books have it priced the other way. KO is minus 160. Decision is as high as plus 220 at DraftKings. I really like that price. So let's bet $75 to win $165 on Canelo by decision. All right. And um, I'm going to go right back to my core competency in golf, which I kind of drifted away from finding the best player to take for a top 20 finish uh, based on the odds. Uh, We're we're in Playa del Carmen, Mexico this week, and I'll choose, which sounds really good to me right now, but uh, (laughs) I'm going to choose from the Thursday afternoon tea times. I go Taylor Gooch. Yes, that's right. T-A-L-O-R. No Y in Taylor and Gooch is Gooch. Uh, Yeah, really. uh, For 75 at plus 180 for top 20. Again, with the no chop at BetMGM. So a tied for 19th with 10 other golfers. Nothing chop us to pieces. I really like that feature that they have. Um, Gooch has a recent fourth, a fifth, and an 11th. And he's in the golfing crowd that they know they need to make hay in the fall while some of the elite golfers hardly even play and let's grab a ton of FedEx Cup points and maybe they make it into the uh, the final rounds of the playoff you know next uh, summer because uh, they they got such a head start so also just give me 25 at plus 350 uh, my boy Victor Hovland of Norway to claim a top five as he tries and almost does but doesn't quite defend his title here 
All righty. Um, so we haven't made a single game NBA bet yet this season. Uh, so I'm going to make one. And the game that jumps out at me tonight is the Heat hosting the Celtics. Uh, Miami is favored by seven. And that team is off to a great start. Clicking, dominating, really. They're six and one with their six wins coming by an average of 19.67 points. Uh, Boston, meanwhile, is three and five with no wins over good teams, a few losses to some not good teams. The chemistry is off. Uh, They did just have a closed door team meeting that could help start to turn things around, but I think the Heat are the wrong team for them to start getting right against, especially on the road. I see that I can get Miami minus seven for even money at Fox bet plus a hundred. So let's do that. 100 to win 100. The Heat giving seven points tonight. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. Now I picked Cincinnati minus 24 last week, specifically on the theory that they would be the rare team that hits the sweet backdoor cover as the favorite when uh, at a lopsided spread when the game is out of reach. Now the Bearcats sleepwalked through the first half for some reason. They dominated in the second. They're up 19 and into lane territory late and... Yeah, too late. With a minute left, they went to victory formation. Uh, you know, the playoff committee yawned at this win, and Cincinnati is now ranked sixth in the first playoff poll, and they're all upset. Well, serves them right, I say. Uh, meanwhile, I'm going to self-exclude from college football for at least one week if this one doesn't hit Eric, and be prepared to hold me to that. Okay. So I, I again, stay away from the Big Ten, and now also clueless Cincinnati. So I go west as an old man. Uh, Oregon minus seven. At, <laughs> 105 to win 100 over Washington on points bet. So we will lose five fewer units this week by me shopping lines. That's real. I'm really proud of that. Uh, we saved five units. Um, not every offense can can manhandle Washington, but I think the Ducks can do just that while their defense holds down the fort. All right. So we've got a couple of different uh, seven point favorites, one in the NBA and one in college uh, football. Yeah. All right. We finished the show with the fast five where it appears I dragged you down, John. Uh, I started my week off great with the Packers on Thursday night, but then I lost my next four, two of which we shared. And you only won one of your other picks with the Seahawks blowing out the Jags. So we both went one and four, which uh, doesn't change my winning percentage much. Sadly, I'm now 14 and 26. Uh, it does bring your win rate down a fair bit, though, dropping you to 22, 17 and one. Uh, still an eight and a half game lead over me, maintaining the biggest lead either of us has had on the other at any point in the four years we've been doing this. Uh, Anyway, let's get to week nine and I'm up first this week. Uh, No opposite strategy, just trying my best, despite how great my record would be if I went against my best picks every week. Um, First up, Dallas giving nine and a half against Denver. The Cowboys are undefeated against the spread so far this season. That's really hard to do. It's going to end soon, but I don't think it ends this week as Dak Prescott seems to be coming back. The Broncos are a mediocre team. They just traded Von Miller. Now, they might have sold high on him when he's approaching washed status soon, but still, it's it's not exactly a win-now move. Uh, so I think the Cowboys can cover this spread. My second pick is another home favorite, but a much shorter home favorite. Uh, I'm on the right side of the hook if I take the Bengals minus two and a half against the Browns. The line is undervaluing the Bengals and overvaluing their fluky loss to the Jets last week. If the Jets don't pull off a series of unlikely occurrences to win that game, it's probably the Bengals by about four or four and a half in this one. Uh, So I'm all over Cincy giving two and a half against a Browns team in some degree of disarray. Uh, Next up, Before the Aaron Rodgers COVID news, 
man, did I love the Packers getting a point against the Chiefs, who continue to be overrated in terms of the odds makers lines. But then Rodgers was ruled out. Jordan Love is in. The Packers are now getting seven. And I think that's a little too wide against a Chiefs team that simply has a lot of deficiencies. Um, Football Outsiders rates them as the number 18 team in the whole league, but the sports books rate them number eight in terms of Super Bowl odds. They're just not that good, uh, even if I'll admit their turnover numbers are a victim of randomness and variance to some extent. But anyway, bottom line, the Chiefs might well win this game, but I don't see them covering seven. So give me the Packers. Um, I felt all season that the Cardinals are good, but not great. Um, Cliff Kingsbury's tendency has been to start well and then get worse as the season goes along. I think the seal is broken now that they've suffered one defeat. They'll suffer more. Give me the not dead yet 49ers getting a point and a half at home against the division rival cards. And lastly, I've been fairly low on the Steelers all season, but they do have a first rate defense. And against Justin Fields and his relative lack of weapons, I think they can keep the Monday night game at home against the Bears, low scoring and cover as six point favorites. So give me Pittsburgh and I'll even give you the final score. 19 to 10 is what my prediction, if that hits exactly, uh, does that count as uh, 10 fast five wins? I, I think it should. Uh, no, I'm not giving you any bonus <laughs> okay. points here. Right? I'm going right. to sit on my lead and, and finish that off. I think <laughs> okay. we have one matching and one head to head. So that's okay. kind of good. Um, yeah, I had a big loss and a big win locked up quickly in a later window last week. So I'm sitting on 22, 14 and one and well into the second half, I expected football team to keep its cover for the Buccaneers and chargers to close. Well, two, four in one week, crazy Nirvana of 25, 14 and one. How great is that? <laughs> yeah. Clink, clank, clunk. And <laughs> my first bad week, though, so onward and upward. Um, give me the Texans plus six and a half points of the dolphins. Um, if you saw any of last week's uh, game or even two weeks ago, the Texans, for some reason, some of their players still have a tiny amount of pride left in them. The Dolphins, you know, for a while against Sleeping Buffalo, true. Uh, and their first round pick, it goes to the Eagles. So yep. their future's not looking so good. That's pretty demoralizing. And again, two bad teams. I get a bunch of points. You know, anybody can win and my team can win outright. And I get points just in case. Um, yes, Cowboys minus nine and a half against the Broncos. I agree. It's a midseason morale thing. Denver nearly lost the fifth straight game to a clueless team and they ship Von Miller out the door, as you noted. And, you know, second straight game where hapless Mike McCarthy goes against a coach whose clock manager skills make even McCarthy look good. So that's uh, encouraging for them. The, the end of that Denver Washington game was comical, absolutely comical. I mean, these guys, I, I was laughing because these coaches get like six months off, right? You'd think they could put in like, I don't know, two hours in six months to learn how to, uh, you know, whether to run or pass and, you right. know, whether guys go out of, going out of bounds or anything like that, but a lot of them haven't learned it. So uh, we try and take advantage of that. Um, Patriots minus three and a half at Panthers. I've come around to the Patriots and against the round on the Panthers, which pretty much that simple for that one. Next is uh, Falcons plus six at Saints. You know, funny thing about losing a young, healthy quarterback in mid-game is that I think a good coach like Bruce Arians loses more leverage than a bad coach does because he's got a great, a true game plan against the Winston, and then he's hurt. He's got a rando guy in there. He doesn't have quite the same uh, advantage that he did. So the Saints, I'm, I'm still not sold that they're fine. They're definitely better than the Falcons at all. So I get six points. Uh 
to maybe find out I'm wrong, but I could still cover. Finally, no, I'm going Cardinals minus one and a half points at the 49ers. You know, the Niners won a sloppy game against the confused Bears, and now they're being elevated to this level? I don't think so. Cardinals got their wake-up call, which they did badly need, and now they put somebody else to sleep for the season. All right, so that's our head-to-head. Interesting. Uh, if there was one thing I was sure of looking at the slate this week, it was that you were going to pick Houston because you love picking against Miami, and it served you well so far. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right, that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening, and thanks again to our guest and game show host, Lloyd Danzig. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan, and follow US Bets at US underscore Bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out. I'm going to reveal a dirty little secret. I have never played fantasy football, believe it or not, mm-hmm. although many or most of you probably do. Uh, look, we've repeated the mantra here. Of, Nobody cares about your fantasy football team. <laughs> and I agree with that. And my own ad is that any money you do win uh, any year should go to all family members who have to put up with any of the nonsense that you either talk to them about or you don't want to go out apple picking or something on a Sunday because you have to watch your beloved team. So win the money, hand it over. You don't keep it. Uh, but three major events occurred this week and if you own derrick henry and you were the favorite to win your league until the season ending injury i retroactively grant you some whining catharsis to be fair so i'm not going to hold that against you but if you own falcons receiver calvin ridley who's taken an indefinite leave of absence to handle some sort of personal issue and you criticize him uh it's time for a little perspective we don't know what the issue is yet and it may never be any of our business but odds are extremely high that it's a thousand times more important than whatever impact this has on your place in a silly fantasy football league standing and particularly if you own henry ruggs iii who's been arrested for driving in a fatal crash at an allegedly uh, high rate of extremely high rate of speed and with possible alcohol involved and now have been released by the raiders don't even think about it a 22 year old woman is dead that we know for sure and never, never confuse fantasy with reality. So just don't go there. And with that, until next time, gamble on.